The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips, and this is Psych Up Live. In this show, as with all of our shows, I want to include you in the conversation. Be sure to listen in and comment at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Be it global issues, national politics, or everyday life, effective decision-making is central to success. Are men and women viewed differently when it comes to decision-making? Our guest today, Dr. Therese Houston, is going to answer that question and more. She invites us to change the conversation about women as decision-makers. She's the author of the new book, How Women Decide, What's True, What's Not, and What Strategies Spark the Best Choices. As you will hear, she not only changes the conversation about women as decision-makers, she will consider how men make decisions and how men and women may actually benefit from their differences. The strategies that she offers today come from the fascinating research you will find in her book. This is a page-turner. It's a great book. Dr. Houston is a cognitive scientist at Seattle University. Her PhD is from Carnegie Mellon. Her postdoc is from the Center for the Neurobasis of Cognition at the University of Pittsburgh. She's written for the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, And her first book is Teaching What You Don't Know. Dr. Therese Houston, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you, Suzanne. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, it's Therese. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Therese, what prompted you to write How Women Decide? Well, I want I, I love reading the science literature, and I was looking several years ago for a scientific topic where there was fabulous science happening that would be helpful and practical, but that people didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what I want. I you know some people call it science help as a, as a field, but basically, how can we apply science to improve our lives? And I was I was looking at my bookshelf. I literally looking at my bookshelf, and there was a glaring gap in in terms of the books that I have there. So one out of my bookshelf, I have these best selling books on decision making, looking at the science of decision making. And these are brilliant books by Daniel Kahneman, Dan Ariely, Chip and Dan Heath, fabulous books that I love and have read more than once. 
but there was something missing. None of these books talked about gender. And that perplexed me because the world isn't blind to gender. It's, it's one of the first things that people notice. Um, for instance, all of these books talk about intuition, but none of them talked about women's intuition. Whereas mm-hmm. that's, a con- that's something that a lot of us think about when we think about intuition. That's a phrase people know. So on the one end, I, there were no issues of gender on the, the books about decision-making. At the other end of my bookshelf, I have these great books about women in leadership. Um, Lean In, The Confidence Code, um, Mistakes right. I Made at Work, a number of other great ones. Right. And, and they all had a very core message, which is if women just behave more like men, they'd be more successful like men. <laughs> and, but they right. weren't talking about decision-making. So it was a very interesting <clears throat> gap. The, the books on decision-making weren't talking about gender. The books about gender and leadership weren't talking about decision-making. And I began to wonder, is it the case that when women and men make decisions the same way, do people treat those decisions the same way? Wow. Well, it's it's really true what you say about those two sets of books. <clears throat> so the question of whether they treat the decisions the same way and making them is is fascinating. Let's start with some of what you mentioned at the beginning, and that is women are up against certain challenges, Therese, wouldn't you say, in terms of, I mean, they're in, women are more than ever in politics, in corporate, the corporate world, in administration, but there are some realities that they, against which they have to make their decisions. It's, it's exciting that women are playing so many more managerial roles in, in both business and in politics, and it's exciting to see them, uh, to, to see so many women at so, in so many roles that they weren't even 10, 15 years ago. But still at the very top, in terms of the top level of decision making, you, you don't see many women. Uh, one of my favorite statistics, uh, or at least one of the, the ways that I think this point is really driven home, is something that I call the John statistic. Mm-hmm. And the, the John statistic is that if you look at the S&P 1500, which are the 1500 uh, largest companies in, um, the, on the New York Stock Exchange, there are more CEOs named John than there are women of any name. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> when that's you hear great. that, you're like, wow, that is, that's not many women at the top decision-making levels, Right. Really? Um, and obviously, just the CEO doesn't make all of the decisions, but they're a key. They're a key decision-making uh, stakeholder. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we aren't seeing many women at those top levels, even though you see an increasing number of women at the mid-level of management. And uh, I, I, uh, my research was driven by questions around what are some of the stereotypes that we have about women as decision makers that might be holding women back from some of those top positions? What, what do people believe about women as decision makers that might make them hesitate and think, you know, we'd really rather have, we'd rather, really rather elect a man in this, in this situation, or we'd really rather promote a man into this VP role? Are there some unconscious biases that people would perhaps be embarrassed to admit, but that might be holding them back? Mm. Now I know one of the things with respect to that bias or that assumption that you that you do some great um, writing and researching about is risk taking. I mean, people want leaders who will uh, break through, you know, the problems, break through the barriers, and be innovative. And there's a kind of general feeling that men are bigger risk takers than women. 
uh, even in the day-to-day. Now, what did you find about that? So there is a very strong perception that men are the bigger risk takers, and you can see it even in our language, right? There are phrases like man up or a man's got to do what a man's got to do. This mm-hmm. language suggests, and there's, there's some that gets kind of vulgar and crass, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, right. that, that suggests that, that, uh, men, that men, need to do, men need to take the risks, and there aren't, there aren't comparable phrases for women. Mm-hmm. Um, there are phrases for women like shrinking violet um, that, that suggest, if anything, women should be standing back and not taking risks. So we see it in our in our language. There is a common assumption that men take more risks, and we do see men taking more risks in certain areas. So the research shows that men take more risks in terms of hobbies. So you see more men in extreme sports. Mm-hmm. You see more men doing reckless risk taking, speeding on the highways, uh, gambling, particularly um, obsessive. Gambling, where it's a, you know there's a real problem and people are needing are going into mm-hmm. debt. That's much more common among men. Um, so reckless risk taking is more common among men. Mm. But, no. but of course, that's not you know that kind of risk taking isn't. Or perhaps we wouldn't we wouldn't think we wouldn't when you're hiring someone you wouldn't care about the reckless risk taking. It certainly wouldn't. If anything, it would be a, a negative, right? Mm-hmm. In looking at a job candidate, not a positive. But there's also a perception that men will take more risks in the workplace and in so many fields, particularly in technology, but even in business in general, there's an assumption that risk-taking, you want people who are going to take good risks, but in general, you want people who are going to do innovative things and not just do the status quo, that for the company to grow, you need to take some risks. And so when we look at that research, uh, what we find is that when you compare people who are professionals and have experience in a field, so let's say you compare two professional managers, you don't find gender differences. If people have experience in a field, men and women take the same number of risks. And Suzanne, I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? In order to move up in a job, Mm -hmm. um, you need to know what kinds of risks are worth taking. So that you wouldn't expect a gender difference if you compare people at the same level. So you don't see a risk-taking difference in professionals, but people still believe they still have that stereotype that men will take more risks. And in fact, to, it's to the point where if people are making a risk assessment of someone, if they're, if they're having to guess based on someone's resume how many risks a person will take, if they're looking at that person's resume and the past projects they've worked on at Disney or Microsoft, when they're looking on paper, they can do a pretty good job of estimating how many risks that person will take in the future. Mm. But as soon as they find out if it's a male or a female that they're evaluating, suddenly their estimate changes. So they give much more weight to that the gender stereotype that they have than the data in front of them. That's why some of the studies are so <clears throat> interesting. For instance, I, I loved the study that showed for expert bridge players, I think it was, yes. that there was no difference with the women and men in terms of the risks they were taking when playing. But as soon as you taught men and women a new game, there it was. Men were taking much more risks than women. And this is, I, I love that you brought up that study, Suzanne. That's, that was one of my favorites in the book. This, they looked at this, this national bridge championship that was being held in Boston. And when you looked at the risks that people took actually playing this card game, they were basically professional card players at bridge. When you looked at the risks they took, you didn't see men making riskier bets or playing riskier hands. Men and women were taking the same risks at something they knew very well. 
But then they did, they did this interesting thing where when people were going to take their breaks, researchers tapped them on the shoulder, pulled them over and said, I'm going to teach you a new game. How much are you willing to, to pay to play this game? Mm-hmm. And now they found that men took many more risks. And so it was interesting. It gets back to this idea of, is it a hobby or something that's novel to you? In that case, yes, men do take more risks. But if it's something that you're very skilled at, the reason that you're skilled is because you've learned which risks to take. And that's mm-hmm. where we don't see a difference between men and women. It's so interesting. Now, you say the terrain changes also when we add stress. When we add stress, you say risk-taking with men and women starts to become very different. And you, you sort of underscore that as an important reason we need men and women in the boardroom. Maybe you could talk about that a little. I would love to. So let's get back to a common stereotype that you that probably many of your listeners have, even if they haven't realized that they have this belief. So many people believe that when women become stressed, they're likely to become emotional and fall apart. But they believe that when men become stressed, that men are more likely to stay calm, even-keeled, and level-headed. And that means that in stressful situations, people often pivot towards men, expecting he'll take charge. Right? We're not sure if she's going to remain as clear-headed as she normally is. We'll turn to the men. And researchers have been testing this in the lab, and they're finding that we've really got this wrong. We've really misunderstood how people respond under stress. Uh, so first of all, uh, men aren't as steady as, as we think they are or as, as it seems. Researchers are finding that when men are under acute stress, and they, 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 they put men in stressful situations so that their heart rates go up and their cortisol levels, cortisol being uh, one of the hormones your body releases when you're under acute stress. When cortisol goes up, men become laser-focused on rewards. So they become eager to take risks because all of a sudden it's as though the, the rewards become even shinier, <laughs> um, more eager to, to, to see right. the rewards materialize. And what that means is because they're focused on the rewards, they're not paying as much attention to risks. Mm-hmm. And men will take bigger gambles and um, more o- take gambles more often under stress than they would ordinarily. So their behavior is changing, so they become more risk-taking. The, what, an analogy I find is helpful here is picture a baseball game. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I understand enough. Picture someone going for a home run, right? You could go for a base hit. That would be a safe, sure thing. Going for a home run, that would be amazing, a huge reward. But it's mm-hmm. also risky because someone can catch that ball, and right. then you're, you're, you're out. Okay, so men are more likely under high stress to go for the what is what would be the amazing opportunity here, even if it's very unlikely to happen, and it could be very costly. So men, in a way, are being emotional in a way that we're not recognizing. The second problem with our assumption, right, remember that we re- the stereotype is that women become emotional and fall apart. Actually, uh, women aren't usually falling apart. What happens under stress is when cortisol levels go up, you see something very different for women, and that is they become very risk alert. They become more attentive to uh, the risks, and they want to go for a sure win over a small possibility of a win. Um, so they, they, they want rewards as well, but they want the reward they know they can get rather than one that's a long shot. So that would be, in the baseball analogy, like going for a base hit. <laughs> like, right, right. Everybody can it's... move a base if I just do this, right? Um, 
and they're they're finding that that these patterns are observable in the brain, where when very high cortisol levels, um, uh, when when cortisol levels go up under stress, there are certain brain areas that become very active for men that don't become active for women, and mm-hmm. these brain areas are associated then with high risk taking. So wow. it's. Um, now, does that mean that, uh, you know, is this pink brain, blue brain? It's hard to know why the brain is reacting that way. It's very likely that it's learned over time because men are often rewarded more for risk-taking. But it's, it's very interesting that we've got men and women pivoting in very different directions under stressful situations. Right. And you mentioned, you know, what does this mean for uh, you know, the way that we organize groups. Okay, wait. Yeah. I'm just going to ask you to hold that because we're going to take a brief break. I mean, that's really very, very important what we're going to go to. You've been listening to Psych Up Live on Voice America. We're here speaking about risk-taking and differences in decision-making between men and women. We're with Therese Huston. Houston, her book is... How women decide what's true, what's not, and what strategies spark the best choices. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You've heard of good things coming in packages. Well, maybe there's a little more to that saying. But when you think about it, packaging is one of the most important things that can represent your business. Tune into Ditch the Box with host David Marinak. Each week, we'll discuss flexible packaging, marketing, sales, and how it all comes together in one container. Lower costs, increased margins. Listen to the show. It might just save you a ton. Ditch the Box is heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Maryland Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. You're listening to Psych Up Live, and we're here with Therese 
Houston, and she's speaking about the difference between men and women and risk-taking, which we see even is neurological, different parts of the brain light up. Men are big reward seekers. They're risk-hungry, as you describe it in your book. Women are more risk-alert. So let's pick up right there, Therese. What does this mean for the boardroom? So as we, when we started this conversation, we were talking about how in far too many organizations, you only see men at the top decision-making level. That means when a crucial decision is being made, you have 10 men in a room or you have maybe nine men in a room and only one woman. Here's what we need to think about. Given what neuroscience is telling us about how men and women respond under stressful circumstances, it tells us that we need more women in the room making these crucial decisions, not because women are better decision makers. I'm I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that under stress, men and women pivot in opposite directions in terms of what they're seeking. Are they seeking uh, high-seeking immediate reward or high-seeking of a long-term, long-shot reward, which means we need men and women in the room to counterbalance one another, to make a really good decision. We don't want to just lean in one direction or the other. And the fact that so many organizations have no women on their executive boards or in the, in the, um, the C-suite is a real problem because it means that under stress, when, when uh, the market falls or when a company has made a terrible decision and they're scrambling to decide what to do next, do we remove that product? Do we, or do we recall it? What should we do? Uh, it, it's a real problem that you only have men often discussing those decisions because the mm-hmm. research would predict they're going to go for the long shot. And so we need women in the room to counterbalance. And we, we need those women to speak up when they are in that room. <laughs> sure. Exactly. It's, it's not going to help if they're not participating. That's absolutely right. 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 And so that puts um, the onus on everyone, right? So right. it's not just enough to bring women into the room. The women need to participate. And the people who are in the room Men and women need to genuinely listen to their input. That can be a hard situation if a group is used to, we're going we're gonna to go for the long shot. We need to take this risk. We need to save the company. Um, if women are raising risks that, that perhaps the men in the room are thinking, that's ridiculous, you, you know, you're being too conservative, it helps to realize under stress, men and women are acting differently than they normally would. Men are acting right. differently as well. Right. The, the knowledge from the gender studies actually informs both genders and really makes it a win-win when they can um, integrate both of those different types of decision-making under uh, risky situations. Let's move to another piece now, and the question is intuition and using your gut. Um, do men and women both use their gut? Uh, what does that even mean? Do we have to and do women rely on intuition more than men? What would you say, how would you define, first of all, Therese, how would you define intuition? Oh, let's see. Do I have a good definition for intuition? Well, researchers who study intuition, and there are a fair number of these, indicate that when we talk about intuition, we're really talking about a few things. First of all, we're talking about a decision that comes without uh, a conscious, we, we can't consciously trace how we got to that, that decision. 
right? We just, mm-hmm. we, a, a feeling or a thought emerges and we can't say, well, here are the steps how I got there. So that's number one. It's, it's, there's no conscious process or conscious steps that you took to get there. Um, so that might be like you're, you're driving someplace and you have to make a choice between left or right and you don't have the information up on your phone. You're thinking, well, I could go left or right. I'm just going to go left. That, that seems right. right. So that would, be, that would be an intuitive decision. Um, so you uh, don't have conscious access to why you're making a decision. Uh, secondly, it feels holistic. So it feels like it's one, it's, it's one thing coming to you very clearly all at once. Um, third, it te- there tends to be an emotional component to it. That means you feel either really drawn to something or you feel really repulsed by it. Uh, that is often the case when in hiring decisions. People often make hiring decisions very intuitively. They, mm-hmm. they feel very drawn to a candidate. They're like, I just, there's something I like about him. Right, <laughs> And right. I can't put my finger on it, but I think he'll be a good fit here, right? Um, there's, so you're being drawn, or you're, you're like, I don't think this person would be a good fit. There's just something I don't like about him. So mm-hmm. there's often an emotional component being drawn towards or being repulsed by. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So those are some of the components of intuition. We often uh, talk about going with your gut or going with your heart. Those would be you know, more colloquial phrases that researchers would put under the phrase on intuition. Now, do you think in the decision-making process in the corporate world and politics, do you think that women are using intuition more than men are? So people believe this is true. Right? Have you have you ever even heard the phrase men's intuition? No. I haven't. <laughs> I know I haven't. So people believe that women use intuition more. The what the research indicates, there's this great study done by Allenson and Hayes, and they looked at thirty-two different studies that had looked at gender and decision making styles. And in those thirty-two studies, forty percent of the studies, roughly forty percent, found that men took the more intuitive style than women. Women actually Hmm. took a more analytical style, looking at the data, um, doing a very conscious elimination process of what was the best choice. So in 40% of the studies, men were being more intuitive, just going with the, here's this feels right, I'm going to go with this. Now, you're probably doing some quick math, Suzanne, and thinking, well, in the other 60% of the studies, that must mean that women were being more intuitive. And that's not what they found. In the other 60% of the studies, there was no difference between men and women's intuitive or analytical style. People were taking the same approaches based on the decision. So what it tells us is in none of these studies did they find women adopting a much stronger intuitive approach than men. If anything, they found a more intuitive approach being taken by men, not by Mm -hmm. women. Mm. Now, one of it's fascinating. Uh, it's so much what we think, you know, is true, and then you look at the data. Now, one of the things you suggest in in the book is that there's something powerfully important about um, this. I, you know, I would call it from a psychological point of view, it's going with the the known but unthought. Maybe it's a little bit like the um, Gladwell's blink, mm-hmm. but. The question becomes, and that you even talk about them training ER docs to kind of, what you, what does your gut tell you about this patient? But that's just not enough. So I was wondering, where does intuition come in as a good decision-making uh, point, and where does it start to fall off in terms of real um, value and credibility? 
So intuition can be trained, um, and I, I use the example of uh, uh, emergency room doctors and intensive care doctors, where there's a there's a, 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 a woman who she's trying to train her residents in the intensive care unit to become more intuitive about their patients. But in order to train your intuition, you need to get immediate feedback. Um, finding out that an employee did or didn't work four months later is, is not immediate feedback. You need to find out right now, is the gut feeling that I have correct or not? And so what she does is um, she has a practice with her residents where when they walk into a patient's room, before they've looked at the chart, before they have any updated data, they need to make a guess. Is the patient doing better or worse than yesterday? And she mm-hmm. says, she, she tells them, do this. Every, every time you have enough time, I want you to make that guess. Now go look at the chart. And you're going to get feed, the, the, the resident gets immediate feedback, were they right or not? And now they get, to, uh, they get some feedback and data about whether or not that gut feeling they had was correct. And so this is training their gut, and this is, this is very likely to work because they're now, they're now being able to tweak, well, whatever I was paying attention to, that wasn't the right, those weren't the right signals. So mm-hmm. this, those are cases where people can train their intuition. Mm-hmm. Now, most of, most of us, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, we really have to think hard about our environments. How would we get immediate feedback that's not clear for everyone? Oh. A more um, valuable approach is to take your intuition as a data point. If you have a mm-hmm. strong, um, I, I do like this job candidate or I don't like this job candidate, okay, now let's go and collect some data that could be helpful to evaluate whether or not that initial data point mm-hmm. is, is valid or not. Um, right. But researchers, even, even the people who love intuition and, uh, and celebrate it, point out that you should never make big decisions on intuition alone, that you, mm-hmm. need, you take it as one data point and now you need to go collect more data. Right. Now, one thing that's related, and you know, it's so interesting, I think you give the story of a woman who, she researched, she took two years to make this decision, I think a chef, someone very high up going to take over someone's organization, and when you ask her, when you interview her, I think at the very beginning of the book, uh, what did yeah, what, may, what, what was the basis of her decision? I think she says intuition or gut. <laughs> and you're thinking, what? So the other thing is, do we sell ourselves short? Because we automatically somehow, we even, women even perpetuate, you know, the intuition thing with women. And it's took, from what you describe of her decision making, there was a lot more to it. And I, so I think your point about um, uh, in some way using it and both men and women using it as a first, you know, data point really puts it in some perspective. Now, there's a relationship maybe between, and maybe this is what people are talking about. Mm. Would you find that women, let's just take it a step, are actually more attuned in a boardroom than men, that they have a kind of empathic attunement that works for them that may add to the success of that boardroom that's a bit different from men? Absolutely, Suzanne. So we can think about women's intuition in two ways. The one way that we've talked about so far is do women turn inward and, and go with their feeling more than men? And the answer to that is no. Women, men actually are, if anything, more likely to rely on a feeling they can't explain than women are in terms of decision-making. But now you're getting into a second way we could talk about women's intuition that does is validated and supported by the research. And that is that women show greater, the phrase that researchers use, social sensitivity. And that is that women are paying more attention to nonverbal cues of the people around them 
And so, you know, they're in a meeting with someone and they notice someone smiling and nodding. They're not, they're not saying anything, but they're smiling and nodding. If, if women act on that and, and, and raise, so Tina, I see you, is there, is there something you want to add? This leads to some fantastic research being done showing that um, having more women in the group actually raises the collective intelligence of the group. And the, the reason that it's raising the intelligence isn't that women are smarter. That's not the reason. The reason they're raising the intelligence is because they're paying attention to these cues and they're responding to them, making the group pivot to, we need to bring this person in. They're unhappy about this direction of the conversation. Or this person's really excited about this idea. Can, can, can you say what you're thinking? Um, and that improves the group's dynamic and process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you have added that that emotional uh, intelligence to the um, the whatever concrete other factors are being used for that decision. Exactly. It's, it's so, we so often yeah. think that good decisions are made just by looking mm-hmm. at the the factors in the decision. But what's also relevant are how much buy-in does everyone in the room have? Are there are there ideas that people haven't yet expressed? And men can do this as well. Men, uh, there's plenty of research showing that if you just motivate men, they'll pay attention to these oh, yes. verbal cues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. So it's, it's not that this is some unique, mysterious quality women have. It's just that women tend to be more motivated to do this from the get-go. They come mm-hmm. into a meeting paying attention to these cues. One researcher, she said, we could, shouldn't call it women's intuition. We should call it subordinates' intuition. Yes. <laughs> Basically, if you put men in the lower power position, they pay more attention to nonverbal cues. Well, and we've we've seen, and I've seen in clinical work, if if a child, for instance, has had a very rough childhood, they are exquisitely attuned to the adults in the room because that was survival. So <clears throat> it fit perfectly, you know, when you mentioned that, you know, it was subordinate intuition. Right. Um, let's let's move from this to consider for men and women. If we go back to that other piece about confidence, I thought it was so fascinating in terms of giving our listeners. And, and to, we have a little bit of t- time till the break. The mm-hmm. importance of being confident, but when confidence really creates catastrophe mm. and how to avoid that. What, would, what can we share about that? So what's helpful here is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you uh, three terms that will be helpful in understanding when confidence helps and when it hurts. So uh, most of us just talk about confidence, but there's actually three terms. One is overconfidence. So overconfidence would be believing that you have more ability than you really do. I like to think of going to run a 5K. Um, if you have, haven't run a 5K in a long time and you're trying to decide where should, where should I line up for this run, an overconfident person goes and lines up with the people who plan to do six-minute miles. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> you're like, six minutes seems like plenty of time. Okay, you are really overconfident. If you haven't yes. run in a long time, there's no way, way you're doing a six-minute You're really time. crazy, yes. Go exactly, ahead. right. <laughs> and, and, oh, yeah, and probably seven or eight-minute miles overconfident as well. So you believe your abilities are stronger than they are. Then there's appropriately confident or well-calibrated confidence, as researchers call it. And that means you're accurately assessing your abilities. You haven't run in a long time and you're thinking, well, I'd be, I'd be pretty pleased to do a 10 or an 11-minute mile. All right? So you go line up with those runners. Then there's underconfidence, which is you, um, your expectations of your abilities are much lower than your actual abilities. And an underconfident runner might not even show up for the race at all. 
or or they line up with the walkers, right? They don't believe in their abilities. So what the research finds is that um, men tend to be much more overconfident than women. Um, and in a number of ways, in, in the running analogy, I've had some researchers contact me from the Mayo Clinic. They study marathon runners, and they find that, that men uh, often over-push themselves at the beginning of a race um, in marathons, and that they peter out towards the end as compared to women who do a better job of calibrating uh, how well they're doing. And we're going to have to stop right. their time. Yeah, we're going to stop right there, and okay, we're going to come right. It's, it's really terrific. We're going to come right back. <clears throat> We've been listening <clears throat> to Psych Up. <clears throat> We've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Therese uh, Houston, and we're talking about how to use confidence as in terms of decision making. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. This is Suzanne Phillips, and we're on Psych Up Live. We're here with Therese Houston and her book, How Women Decide What's True, What's Not, and What Strategies Spark the Best Choices. We were just talking about the fascinating use of confidence or 
where it gets to be overconfident, uh, overconfidence and maybe not so great for decision-making. Um, Therese, do you want to pick up the, the comparison you were making with men and women in terms of confidence? Sure. So we were just talking about the, the running example as a way to understand overconfidence and underconfidence. And there's a lot of research showing that both men and women uh, tend to believe they're better than average. Uh, you know, the Lake Wobegon effect, for, your, for those listeners who know that, right, Everyone, all, all, the, <laughs> all the men are strong and the women are good looking. Um, yeah. The idea that we're all, everybody thinks that they're smarter than average, kinder than average, etc. So we all tend to be a little overconfident. The problem is, is that men tend to be much more overconfident. Men tend to, like I said, I gave the example, in marathons, um, men often peter out, have a harder time because they, they start out going too fast um, and then find it hard to finish. But there's also a fair amount of research in terms of intelligence, for instance. Um, 57% of American women think that they're above average intelligence compared to uh, 77% of American men. And when you think about it, <laughs> Only about 25 to 30% of people can actually be above average intelligence in terms of what the curve looks like. So um, men tend to think they're much, much better than average. Uh, The problem with that is that overconfidence leads to problematic decision-making because you believe in yourself more than you should. Um, we, we, see, we see this in the, you know, if, in the example with the running. If you try to do a six-minute mile when you haven't run in a long time, you're going to suffer. <laughs> you're going you're to realize that was a bad decision. Uh, but it happens in, in the corporate world as well. A number of huge disasters have been, in the, in the fine, later analysis, people are pointing to overconfidence. Um, in the Japanese nuclear power plant uh, disaster. Yes, there was a tsunami, but the reason it became a real catastrophe was because people were overconfident in their assessments of of the nuclear power plants. Um, The Enron oil spill, um, I mean, uh, the, the Enron crisis, and then we have the oil spill in the Gulf, both of those were cases where you have uh, people being highly overconfident and not looking at not taking steps to make sure that they were being as rigorous as they needed mm. to be. So and, and, overconfidence leads to, basically, you, you just don't double-check, right? If, you, if right? if you're pretty sure of yourself right. and the steps you've taken in the past, you don't double-check your work. And if any of our listeners have read the book or seen the movie In Thin Air, the whole Mount Everest nightmare um, really... Uh, Therese describes that in terms of the new findings of overconfidence, and that is such a powerful, you know, kind of uh, way to make this point. Uh, So interesting in the way you handle it in the book. Um, Just talking about the book, let me stop and ask you, how would our listeners get your book? How can they reach you? I know you've read, you have some wonderful articles in um, Harvard Business Review and the New York Times. How do they find you, Therese? Well, they can go to my website, uh, TheresaHoustonAuthor.com. So, Therese, T-H-E-R-E-S-E, Houston, H-U-S-T-O-N, and then author.com. They can also find my books at your favorite bookstore. If you like Amazon or Barnes & Noble, you can find the book there. And um, if you go to my website, you can also send me an email. I'd I'd love to hear from listeners. 
terrific. Um, so let's let's offer some of our listeners some of your really interesting strategies for both men and women in terms of improving decision making. I mean, you have a few when it comes to risk taking. How can you really be more successful? You know, um, in terms of risk taking. So I'll offer two, particularly around risk taking, because one of the tricky aspects in risk taking is: is it is it a good time? T- to take the risk? Am I leaning too much towards taking a risk or am I being too safe and, and trying to, to play it by the rules? So uh, two, two strategies. One is called a pre-mortem. So many people have heard of a post-mortem, right? You, you do that after a project is over. You look back, what, what could we have done differently? A pre-mortem is before you've made the decision and what you do is it's, it's a little bit tricky, so I'll explain it, and then we can talk about it more if it's not clear. In a pre-mortem, you say, okay, it's six months from now, or it's a year from now, and our decision was a disaster. <laughs> Let's assume this failed miserably. Now, take five minutes and tell the story. Write down the story of why it failed. So this mm-hmm. is very interesting. What you're doing is you're putting yourself in the future, you're pretending it's the future, and you're looking back. And research shows that people provide much more complex, detailed thinking when they're looking back than when they're looking forward. And it mm-hmm. seems kind of convoluted, right? Um, but because you're not really looking back, but people will generate much more concrete reasons for why something failed when they assume it's already happened and they're now, yes. they're now telling the story. Yeah, when they make it real. it's I Exactly. Mean, and yeah. then that can help you identify, oh, these are, here are some risks we hadn't identified. Let's address mm-hmm. those, then we can go ahead with this decision. And we know that whenever we put words to uh, a hazy thought or worry um, it, and concretize it, it becomes so much more usable for us. So it's, this is a very interesting strategy. What other strategies would you suggest? Another one that I like uh, for risk-taking, actually I'll give you two more. One is per- she is put out there by Susie Welch, and she has a strategy called 10-10-10, so that makes it easy to remember, and it seems overly simple. I'll explain it, but it's so powerful. So the idea is you ask yourself when you're thinking about a decision, what would be the consequences of this decision in 10 minutes, in 10 months, and in 10 years? It's great. It's so great. you're... You're basically looking at, you know, three time frames, and you could change it. You could say, you know, 10 days, the exact, but the exact dates don't matter. What's important is immediate, middle term, and long term, because all too right. often, most of us are just looking at the short term or right. just looking at the long term. Um, I've done this with a number of people who are trying to decide whether or not to change jobs, mm-hmm. and it yes. really helps them because they're, as soon as they think about... You know, in 10 minutes, they're like, I will feel so relieved to have made this decision, first of all. (laughs) But when they think about the 10 years, they think, by then my kids will be in college and I will be so glad that I moved to this job where I have more opportunities and I can move around the country or whatever it might be. But it suddenly gets them thinking in a way that they hadn't been thinking already. Right. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful strategy. Now, um, you also have some really fine strategies for... Just making decisions, um, the more than one option strategy, the appraisal, maybe we can share those a little bit. Sure. So when most of us make decisions, 
we probably don't realize this, but we often just ask ourselves, should I do this or not? <laughs> should I? <laughs> I've been invited to this party. Should I go or not? Um, we are. Uh, we we have this. Um, project at work, should we fund it or not? So often we're just giving ourselves a yes or a no. And decision-making researchers would call that actually just one option. There's one option on the table and you're deciding yes or no. And what they find is that people are much more likely to come up with a bad decision when you only think about yes or no. And people come up with much better decisions when you give yourself at least two or three options. So what would that look like? The example I like to give is let's say that you're trying, your company is trying to decide, should we build a new parking garage? Most conversations would just be, should we arguments for building the parking garage, arguments against building the parking garage. Again, that's just yes or no. So if we were to add a second and a third option, we could say, should we build a parking garage or should we give everyone a bus pass who works here? Right? Mm-hmm. That might solve the same problem. It might not, but it might solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And a third option would be, uh, what if we said uh, twice a month everyone can work from home? Right? Now, that might also solve the problem. If it's just a problem of too many people parking, um, coming to work, then giving people the option to work from home could be a very cost-effective way to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. So it's... You can, and now you can see with those three very different options on the table, you can see why you might make a much better decision because now you've expanded the solutions that you're looking at in a really creative way. Yeah, as soon as there's more on, every one of them is seen from a different perspective. I can't control myself from adding here the point that you make toward the end of the book that when it comes to elderly people, they don't want a million options. <laughs> and, and when it comes it's and when it comes to young adults, millennials that they love options. Exactly. So that's, it's such it's such an inter- your findings are just so interesting in terms of informing us about decision making. And it, it's the one, the one about as people get older, they want fewer options. It's really helpful. It doesn't, it's not that as people get older, they want someone else to make the decision for them. But I, you know, when I walk into a restaurant, I, I want to be given these four different side dishes. I do not want 23 pages of side dishes. <laughs> right? Right. You can, right. Um, right. As people get older, they get more frustrated by that. And that can be something that, um, that, Sons and daughters don't recognize. They think their parents want more options. And actually, often they want fewer. They just want the power to make the decision. But generally, uh, in both, in all age groups, moving from just a yes, do it, or no, don't do it, to another option really does really give you a better perspective. Absolutely. Now, the other thing that I thought was fascinating, and we many of us in the field call it reframing, um, the use of reappraisal for decision-making to reduce stress, to improve performance, those studies were wonderful. Maybe you could share some of that as a technique or strategy. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a fabulous technique from clinical psychology. So, uh, so re- the idea is that all too often um, when we are facing a decision that has big consequences, like a decision whether or not to move, whether to leave one's job, uh, to go back to school, to tell your boss that you're unhappy in your, in your work, whatever it might be, a, a decision that has big consequences. Um, people are, are very anxious about making the decision. They might put it off, right, they put the decision off. And what the research shows is that um, the 
experience of anxiety is actually very similar to the experience of excitement. We, we don't think of it that way, but the physiological reactions are very similar. You can imagine, you remember when you were a little kid and you were excited about Santa Claus and you couldn't sleep <laughs> that night before and you kept getting out of bed and your body's just all hyped up. Well, it's, it's surprisingly similar to the night before a big presentation and you're anxious and you can't sleep and your body, but you don't, you're not thinking of it as excitement. So what the research shows is that if you'll just reframe that and tell yourself, I'm excited, not anxious. You may not believe it at first, but telling yourself that, I'm excited, not anxious. I'm excited to be making this decision. I'm excited to decide if I want to take a new job or not. Researchers are finding this actually improves problem solving. It doesn't Mm -hmm. make the feeling go away, right? It doesn't mean that you suddenly become um, really calm, but because you're reinterpreting your body's state, it actually clears your mind so you become a better decision maker. Yes. And... People have better speech, you know, they do better performance and speeches in a number of different ways. They become more effective when they Mm. reframe. So I I do it now all the time. I'm excited about this, not anxious. And it really helps. It does help. Um, We're just about out of time. What take-home message, Therese, would you like to share with our listeners about decision-making for women, for men? Well, I I guess the, the thing, if people only take one message from my book... I would hope that it's this, and that is that having a greater number of women in the room when a crucial decision is being made, it's not just better for women, it's better for the decision, and that's better for everyone. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Therese Houston, for coming on. Your book is wonderful. It's a real contribution to women and success in decision-making. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I really, really appreciate this time today, and I hope I can help out your listeners. Thank you so much. I want to thank our listeners. Remember, you can hear this show and any of the prior shows as a podcast on my house site, my website, on the podcast app of iPhone, on iTunes, at Sketcher. Remember, drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care. Thanks again, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.